Welcome to My Hard Drive Diet, episode number 27, a show about hard drives, data recovery, forensics, and more. I'm Jeff Hallish. I'm here with Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDiet.com. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. How you doing, Jeff? I am doing excellent. I know we were talking about before the show that you went on a little uh, road trip and uh, a hiatus uh, to kind of get away from the technology that you deal with every day. Yeah, uh, so I rode a motorcycle all the way across the country down Route 66. From uh, I went from Atlanta to St. Louis, and then from St. Louis, uh, Route 66, all the way to L.A., Yosemite, and then up through Sequoia, and then came all the way back. So I did 5,700 miles on an Indian. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, across the country, and I did it in 16 days. So it was it was uh, quite an effort, a lot of work, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, also, it gave my brain kind of a break during that process. But I did occasionally have to stop and work for like three hours. So I would actually like stop, pull over, whip out my little uh, you know my laptop and and my wireless, and get on the phone, and then sit there and you know log in and solve problems that were overly complex or or whatever while I was on the road. So uh, so I didn't escape it completely, but it you know it was nice to overlap over the weekends and things like that where you know, I don't have phone calls and answering stuff, but, uh, it was quite a journey and quite an education. And I've learned a lot, uh, about riding a motorcycle across the country and I did it by myself. So nobody else was with me. And, uh, that was the other thing. It was a little bit scary sometimes, but, um, it was quite a journey. Okay. Yeah. That, oh, well, I didn't realize you did it by yourself. That would be a little, uh, yeah, that's a lot of miles. Now, were you sore at all after riding? <laughs> um, no. Uh, so surprisingly, I've been working up to it for a couple of years actually, and then uh, and then I've been drinking tons of water. So about you know three four months ago, before I started doing this, I've just been drinking nothing but water all day long, and so I really wasn't sore, and I really wasn't. Um, I mean, I started building more and more muscle, but I really didn't feel sore every day. Um, and I really wasn't tired almost any day. The only thing I would say is you know on the trip. Uh, I was completely wide awake. I would start in the morning, you know, eat breakfast at, at the hotel and then, and I hoteled it. So I didn't do primitive camping or anything yet. And so that's my, my next journey is going to probably involve primitive camping of some kind or off road or something. But, um, I went route 66, did go through the mountains, did go through some isolated areas where if I'd broken down, I'd be in real trouble. And then of course the desert, the desert by far is the hardest of all of it. And it was, uh, about 107 degrees in the desert. <sighs> But uh, I started out because I, I had a wide temperature change because I started out at the end of April and then went into the middle of May. And uh, so that was started out about 39, 40 degrees and then made it all the way up to 107 degrees. And then, you know, on the way back, a, a variety of temperatures all the way across. Um, and so it does require some different equipment and different stuff. So I, I had to carry quite a bit with me to to. Because I was originally going to actually go into Colorado and come back across, and uh, there was no way through or or back that was easy enough. So that's a separate trip now. Okay. Um, yeah, and and who knows how many miles that would have been? Uh, because I did fifty seven hundred already. Um, and, but no, I wasn't really sore, and and it was really exciting. Uh, the whole trip, I was I was pretty energetic. I only ended up. Uh, I did drink a uh you know a five hour energy three times while i was riding <laughs> so if that tells you anything that's pretty good and yeah. the rest of the time it was just uh enjoying the road and the sights and taking pictures and you know you know enjoying it as i go oh that's cool no that, that's I, you know it's one of those things where I, yeah, I, i'm always telling people that are in you know these industries that you know sometimes you got to take a break and I think that's perfect, even though, yes, sometimes, you know, obviously we have to work a little bit, uh, you know, when we're out of town or whatever, but it's not like the daily grind of being behind the machines, 
you know, like you were telling me earlier, 16 hours a day. I mean, yeah, right. No, I mean, literally this is the first time I've ever done anything like that. And, you know, for, since I was, you know, I got into computers when I was about 12, I started my first real computer job when I was 18. And then, uh, I started contracting when I was 20. And then by the time I was 23 on, you know, my first business. So I, you know, pretty much since the time I was 18, I've been in this industry and, every day a learning adventure and it had been at least for a long time seven seven days a week 16 17 hours a day minimum and then uh until you know maybe four years ago or so when i started slowing down a little bit and then just focusing because you know, i've always focused on all fields i know a lot about computers in almost all areas until you know three four years ago when i started whittling it down to just specifically dealing with the forensics and the data recovery side because it has just grown. There's so much material now. You know, when when you're in the nineties, you could consume every piece of material that was ever written. <laughs> you could you it was pretty easy to do as a whole because it still wasn't a large quantity of material. And then once we finally started getting into, you know, the early two thousands, between magazines and books and all the stuff being published, it's now become you know, implausible to actually consume all of it. Um, and so at some point in time, you have to make a decision. You have to say, these are the things I'm going to do. And, you know, you can't spend every day writing websites and then turn around and, you know, write a program for an iPad and then turn around and, you know, do forensics and go testify in a court case. You just can't do all of those things. Uh, time-wise, it's just not feasibly possible. Um, so that's so that's kind of what's happened is like, uh, you know, now we're in this journey, like where are things going to go? What's new business going to be like in the future? Where are we going to go from here? Should I write this new class? Am I writing this new class? Um, I've been working on a new class for like, you know, seven years now. So okay. uh, <laughs> it's it's evolved a couple of times, but, you know, I've always had this concept of doing something that I call speed forensics. And uh, speed forensics is this idea that, you know, most of the time government agencies and corporate arenas, they have – a long time that they can work on a case they can do they can deal with the case from you know you know it could be from six weeks to you know who knows a, a couple of weeks all the way up to you know 18 months long military and government agencies but there's some like i do a lot of contract law third party work where i have to go into police offices and look at evidence and you don't have all day you have five hours you, you don't have you know nine months to work on evidence you've got to do something very extreme very fast and be able to get directly to the evidence and so i have kind of a, a really narrowed down really good skill at finding this stuff in these couple of hours and so that's always been my thought as i would write a speed forensics class to say you know here's the things that you can do and from beginning of a case to an end of a case, how can you get these results? What can you spit out as a report? How quickly can you get the evidence and find this stuff? You know, using a hex editor in a lot of cases because you can't index, you can't, you don't have the quantity of time you need to do complete. You know, let's do FTK and let's let it sit there and parse data for five days. You don't have that in those cases in a lot of in a lot of situations. So, uh, so that's been kind of a and and if other people are really interested in something like that feedback will probably help me get it done faster and get it out the door because um i think i've got at least a good um 40 hours already ready um that i've you know in concept and, and things put together that would lead into a speed forensics course to try to make people who want to do you know outside that scope of uh forever how do we get here faster and produce this faster? And 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 even in certain situations, and I know I'm talking a lot here, but I mean, we had uh, we used to have the cybercrime conference here in Kennesaw, in Georgia, and uh, I went to the cybercrime conference one year. And from my experience, from some of the things that happened, there had been 
there was one table where they had a database and what they they had a special search product and no one had ever used it. It had been like this, you know, thirty thousand dollar tool and no one had ever used it. So they had a contest and they would tell you a story and you had to pick out the things that were important from the story and then you had to go search this database and emails and all this other stuff and you had to come up with the answer for you know, who embezzled the money, who did this, who, whatever. And you had this whole list of things. And I was pretty close to last because I was teaching at this thing. And then on the, there were like 500 and something people had already done this exhibit. And I think the shortest period of time had been something like four minutes or five minutes for somebody to do this, this skill test. And uh, so I walked up as one of the last people and I did it in one minute and four seconds. So I oh, want to wow. play, I want a PlayStation three. Uh <laughs> from this event but i mean i actually found the evidence showed the evidence actually their tool was slower than i was I actually was having problems because i did a search i thought i didn't get any results but it just took longer for their tool to refresh than i was ready so so just those kind of things i think are the kind of things people need to know in it in it because they think too much about the rest of the case and all this other stuff which was why everybody was taking five minutes to find the answers where I already knew what I was looking for because the keys and the clues that were in the in the discussion that had happened prior to that. And I think those are things people are missing when they're talking about forensics. It's a really slow, drawn-out, long process. So I think it would be an awesome class to be able to do this and say, here, you know, if you're going to use X-Ways or you're going to use a WinHex or you're going to use a hex editor, here's how you find the stuff that you're looking for uh, compared to, you know, the report the police gave you that you've got to sit down and then whittle away at. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, that's uh, be- because I think it's, you know, basically you have a skill. And if you can teach somebody else that skill on how to do it in a, in a short period of time, because a lot of us are used to, um, you know, d- dealing with different things when we're talking about hard drives and recovery and stuff like that. It's like if a customer brings us something for just recovery, it's like, yeah, that can sit on our bench for five days. You know, you're, we're yeah. going to get your data back, but uh, you, you don't always have that luxury in all these cases. So that makes perfect sense. I, I think that'd be a great class. Oh, yeah. You never have it. In, in these cases, what ends up happening is, you know, even if a lawyer tried to hire somebody early on, I mean, it can go on for two, three years. And then all of a sudden there's a court case coming up and then you call that guy back and he's not he's not even doing this anymore. He's gone. So you need a new forensics guy or or, you know, they all, the lawyers wait to the last minute all the time. <laughs> And, and sometimes it's not their fault. Sometimes it's they get dragged into it at the last minute, or they don't know what the you know is going to happen with their customer, how much money they have, those kind of things. So there's a lot of reasons why. But then they get into well, in 30 days we have a trial, so you don't have any time to deal with this content, and you've got to go and come up with a rebuttal for whatever these items are that they've been arrested for, or you know review the content, find out who did something, and they have specific counts that they're charged with and you've got to battle each one of these counts in a lot of cases it may be 40 or 50 counts so you've got to sit there and find every every piece of evidence that goes with that why it happened the whole thing and so it's you don't have time you just have no way of doing this so there's some really quick ways that you can kind of get to the evidence look at the evidence review where it's coming from and go into and it doesn't take um not that it can't, but you know, at least if there's some good reason, in a lot of cases you might be able to get an extension or something. But a lot of times you're bound to this very short term to do these forensics cases, and you've got to be extremely surgical about doing this. Um, and that's kind of you know the concepts that I go over in my head all the time when, especially when I'm traveling and doing these kind of things. It's like what I really want to produce is an actual lab event that would be like, here's a case. I'm going to give you something. You're going to work on it under fire. 
and then I'm going to come back at you and figure out what your result was, and then I'm going to try to show you how you could have done it better, and then try to do that in like a 10-step process so that you're growing through the process. And that's my idea is to have these labs that would force you to think on your feet and force you to start putting two and two together rather than all the classes that normally are out there now where they just go, here's one, here's one, here's one, and I hope you at the end can add one, one, and one. Like I literally, you know, because most classes are one-on-one type classes. They're going to be, here's how you do this function. Here's how you do this function. Here's how you do this function. And none of them really say, you know, what happens in a trial under fire? Like what right. happens, you know, you've, you've probably seen stuff where people do mock trials. And what if you could be involved in that process for a week in a lab? Would, would you come out of it a different person? Absolutely. I think it's, you know, again, I, I think I've said it in a lot of our different shows, but um, a lot of what we do really has a lot to do with mindset and kind of where you're at. Not not necessarily just technical skills, you know, because the technical skills can you can pretty much learn the technical skills. But to have the mindset of how to do something in a certain fashion, you know, it it takes practice. It takes time. And, uh, you know, sometimes it takes somebody teaching us how to do that. And, and and I think it's a little because I know teaching up to a certain point because it's typically always been I'm going to teach you this and we're going to sit down for an hour and you're going to listen to me talk like I do on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what if I created a crafted something that's like a case that's an image file or something that I'm going to give you and then here's the tools and I'm going to you know part of what happens is as a teacher I can learn a lot by watching you fumble. Right, And so when I give you something and I say, here's your, you know, I, I've trained you how to use this tool and I've trained you how to do this. Now let's see if you stumble through this and think through the process. And then that's the part where I can, I can provide guidance by kind of customizing. And, and of course, this again can't be a huge class. It has to be, you know, 10 people or less where I can actually sit and watch each person's process. And I'll know pretty quickly. I mean, I know from doing these other classes, I've taught 80 of these data recovery classes and I've taught people how to take heads out of you know, one drive and move them to another drive and move platters and move brackets and move all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's a, it's a highly technical, very evolved process. And if you don't do it exactly right, it's not going to work. And I can already anticipate like the second that I've, I've, you know, handed a drive to somebody just by watching them pick up a screwdriver and stick it in the hole, I can tell you what they're going to do and what they're going to, how they're going to mess up and which part is going to be a problem. And I anticipate it now after doing 80 of these classes. And I think I can do this if I came up with a class like this, the speed forensics kind of thing. And then I don't also replace anything else that exists out there. I'm not competing with SANS and not competing with, you know, other vendors out there who teach and do certifications. I'm creating something that's a learning process that, that, uses your mind instead of I just know how to take a test. Exactly. No. And I, I think those learning experiences are gold compared to, you know, cause l- let's face it, a lot of schooling and different things like that are based around you take you learning from a book or from a teacher and getting the right answers. You take the test and then you just forget all the information that you just memorized for that test. Right. Yep. And so, yes. I, you know, the practical training or, on the job training, but you know, in a mock situation, I, the, I, for a lot of people, I really think that's the best way to learn. Yep. No, I, I agree. And I watched them do it in doing this data recovery course because I do jam them with a lot of information. But at the same time, on the back end, you know, they're spending, you know, 20, 30 hours reassembling hard drives and being successful. So, I mean, last week I taught. U.S. Army. Um, I had a U.S. Army course uh, for all their forensics people. And so um, everybody, 
was able to reassemble the drive. Everybody who physically sat down, disassembled the drive, reassembled the drive, got it working. Some people did five or six or seven drives. And to say that in one week you've learned from zero to that, uh, you know, there is there is a lot that I will take credit for in the mentoring process, but there's a lot in their process for learning the skills and following the instructions as well. And once they've learned it, then they can expand that. They can go do, you know, things they haven't done before. Um, and we also do even soldering in the class, which a lot of people have never done soldering. You, we use an infrared desolderer, and that opens up a whole other door for things that aren't even anything to do with hard drives because – you could take something, you know, a board of any kind and go and move chips around and desolder stuff and resolder stuff and repair stuff you could never touch before. And, and literally, it only takes me 15 or 20 minutes to teach you this skill. Wow. No, that's oh, that's that's awesome. Because, yeah, I know my my soldering skills are OK. But, yeah, when it comes to like, you know, any of the, you know, kind of the micro, you know, micro soldering or, or whatever is. Right. I, I just, had. I had guys last week who had never soldered before in their life, and when we were done moving a CPU or a memory chip on their board, you could not tell the difference between it being bought that way from the manufacturer and them doing it. Oh, that's that's awesome. Well, so in soldering, that's that's you know immeasurable from that standpoint. So absolutely, yeah, because there are there are right ways to do it, and there are definitely wrong ways to do it. Yep. And I think people are scared of it. People, tech people, you know, they talk about it a lot and it comes up a lot in a lot of discussions. And a lot of people say, yeah, I can do that. But they never do it and they've never done it. And that's that's the other side of that is that sometimes they just they're just scared to do it. And this one tool is just all and it's not an expensive tool. You can go on on eBay and you can buy this uh, infrared desoldering iron for like 250 bucks. And it will change your life. It literally will change your life as far as soldering. I, I, I can do anything, anywhere, just about, and never have to touch a actual iron where you're actually having to drag solder around or do things. It's so much easier. Okay, that's a great tip. Yeah, we'll definitely get a link for that uh, for yep. that type yep. of product in the show and, notes. And I'll just say it, just so people know, if you do a search for uh, T. 862 plus plus if you do a search for that it's that's there's no brand name there's no anything it's made out of china so like it doesn't seem like there's a brand name or anything but there's but this is the one that i'm using it's a cheap uh you know 250 dollars thing comes with an actual iron and everything but it has a bga uh, ball grid array that it can actually do that in infrared on the top and uh and it's called t 862 plus plus and the plus plus means the size of the square if you're going to do a cpu that's going to be like five inches by five inches uh that's what the plus plus is for if you get a single plus it's going to be smaller so okay cool very cool oh man chock full of information here so what is going on in the hard drive industry today is there anything new that's coming about i know we've we've talked in the past about you know, obviously we have SSDs, we have spinning drives, we have, you know, I mean, really your flash, you know, a lot of your flash USB drives are basically SSDs, you know, just miniaturized. Yep. Um, is there anything new coming down the pike that, you know, we should be looking for as far as drives and stuff like that or anything that's going to make our lives easier? Because I was reading an article from Backblaze and they basically they had their their uh, hard drive tests in all the different manufacturers that they use. And they come out with this article, which I'll have a, a link for it in the show notes. But it's basically their hard drive reliability stats for Q1 2015. And, you know, they're talking about all these different things of all these different types of hard drives and how many they have and how many failed and what the percentages are. And it to me, it just looks like everything is failing 
some better than others, but it's like everything out there is failing. So where are we going to in the future? Um, so, well, first off, just to kind of address this now, they're doing this because and if I remember correctly, they have like a, you know, a lab or something and some people have submitted results for, you know, 40,000 drops or whatever it is. And so they have a huge number of, um, you know, actual labs or something that are submitting this that are actually using these drives and doing things. And I, I know I've seen the numbers and I saw the stuff and I just tried to decide whether or not I agreed with them or not and their <laughs> fail rates and those kind of things. And I think if I remember correctly, they still always say Hitachi was the better one. Like yes. that's the one like, and that's always been the thing for me is I've always said since you know, all the way back to the Death Star when it died back in the early 2000s and they got sued for it, which was a, a manufacturing problem that had to do with the, you know, the platters being scraped and data coming on. Uh, so there was there were some problems. They got sued. They basically fixed stuff. Then IBM got out of the game. They sold it to Hitachi. Uh, and so that's where that kind of comes from, from that standpoint. And I've always thought they were the better drive since then, since that time. So the earlier ones, not so much. Later ones, much, much better. And out of the group of them you know i feel like uh seagate always plays catch up they have a lot of firmware problems they do have head problems they have less board problems on seagate drives western digitals western digital their brand name because now western digital owns hitachi this is the other problem is that unless it says hdst on the beginning of the drive label or on the beginning of the content it's just going to say western digital and you're not going to know which one was a western digital hitachi and which one's the real you know which one's western digital's other brand of drives okay and my personal opinion is uh you know it's going to be hitachi first it's going to be western digital's drive second and then you know then seagate seagate's actually fallen way down in the list and and i don't know i think on their list they have all the hitachis first and then they gave seagate barracudas uh you know they're not sorting this list by percentages of so i'm not seeing them by percentages of what i think they fail more my personal opinion is i'd rather have a western digital than a seagate at this point and i'd rather have a tachi than any of them and i'd never want a samsung um i'm not a big toshiba fan myself uh toshiba and um uh so toshiba bought fujitsu Fujitsu drives, you know, they had a huge problem back in the early days, and right. then now they're basically getting their OEM drives and stuff going. So uh, I've never been a huge Toshiba fan. There's some other caveats. I don't think they fail a lot, but I don't see a lot in this country. And maybe, you know, they're outsourced in a lot of other countries. There's a, they're a lot more prolific because, uh, you know, the import and the mechanisms that they use here might be, you know, a little more control from that standpoint. So I don't see as many of those. But, uh, I kind of avoid them. I don't like they, – they now started making a three-and-a-half-inch drive, and I do not like their three-and-a-half-inch drives at all just looking at how they're made and how they're manufactured. I don't know if they're going to fail. They seem to have a low rate of failure according to some of the statistics, but I don't think we have a lot of material on them. But they are made cheaply. Like there used to be this old Connor peripherals drive, and it was like when the company was going out of business, the way they would cut down on things is cut down on metal, cut down on magnets. They sure. cut down on a bunch of things, and that's what this Toshiba drive looks like like to me it looks like from that standpoint that it's really been you know completely messed up from that standpoint and so so i don't i personally don't trust drives at all i think all drives period are going to fail they're all bad all of them are going both solid state and spinning discs i think solid state is going to go faster than spinning disc is going to guy i think solid state is far more deadly from that standpoint okay so 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 i am less likely at least from that standpoint to 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 
think that my solid state drive is the best drive out there. So if you're really looking at your choices, you don't have a lot of good choices. Um, <laughs> not for long-term storage, right? So sure. I still think RAID Array is the best way to go. I do not think RAID Array with solid state is a way to go at all. I think it is completely, if any of you are out there and you're making choices for your company and you think buying a solid state RAID Array for your company's servers is a good idea, trust me when I tell you, you, you that's complete failure. You should completely back off of that position 100%. All the drives are going to have the same problems, fail at the same time. They're all going to have the same bugs. And so they barely survive the RAID Array whenever there's a failure. They'll be fine and they'll be fast up until then. But then you have downtime and you have problems and you may not be able to recover, even if it's a RAID 5 array or RAID 6 array. So I think you should stick with spinning disks. If you can get Hitachis, if you can't get those, I'm going to say SAS. So you SAS drives are far better made. All of the SAS drives, no matter who's making them, are far better made than any SATA drive that's out there. And so if you really want the safest alternative, use RAID 6 with SAS drives, and that will be your safest bet. Everything else is trash and consider it trash. You should be backing everything up. It's probably a good idea to alternate brands so that what you're backing up to is not the same brand as the drive that you are starting your source with in the first place. And so that would be my opinion is to alternate those. Now, as far as the future goes, none of this at some point in time is going to survive. Uh, I think as we're getting bigger and bigger drives, we're going to 6-terabyte, six, 8-terabyte, six 10-terabyte. Those fail rates are going to be through the roof. I think they're pieces of crap. So far, I, I cannot imagine. And plus, it'll take out six terabytes when it goes. That's pretty bad. I mean, you're going to lose oh, yeah. a lot. Or 10 terabytes. You're going to lose a lot of data. And those are hard to back up. Those are hard to – I mean, you have – if you have four terabyte – four six-terabyte drives in your array, well, that's a lot of data to back up. And that's tremendous from a standpoint of just duplicating time. And then you have to calculate your restore time. Your restore time is even worse uh, because whatever it's coming from is going to be a slower transfer than your initial transfer of getting the data to it. And so because you're live and you're able to use the server, but now you've got to restore and you're in the middle of a dead period. So everybody's going to be breathing down your neck. Sure. Um, so so solid state is dead in the way, in my opinion. Like you shouldn't be using this at all. Your spinning disks are going to die. And so some technology has got to change in the next three to four years. It's completely got to go in a whole nother different, absolutely changed direction because this isn't going to work the way we're going to keep going. I'm just going to say that. So that's pretty bad. That means I'm telling you my job <laughs> is over. That, 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 that data recovery is going to fail. The hard drives are going to fail. The whole hard drive industry, like, and I'm predicting that, and it really sucks from that standpoint because people are like, well, this has been around for 40 years. Um, my personal opinion, and if I had to bet on anything, it's going to be a guy named Stuart Parkins who works for Palo Alto Research. Um, he is a physicist who originally invented the head of the hard drive we currently use who has been working on storage material in what's called domain walls. And, uh, and it's the first time that there's been – Material and I've talked about this before. Racetrack memory is what they're calling it, but it's really its real name is magnetic domain walls, and uh, they call it racetrack memory. They store the state of an atom without a phase change, and they're able to actually read and write from this this disk that they have made. And it would be solid state for all intents and purposes, but not NAND in the way that we think of NAND. And I see news stories every day about, oh, you know, Crucial has made some breakthrough in NAND, and here's going to be some, you know, super one million write cycle that we can do. I don't believe any of it. I don't believe – I've seen too much marketing material that comes from these companies and not engineering diagrams. And let me tell you, they don't agree. The, the stuff just doesn't agree, and the – 
this theory that we're making some new material or this other process. NAND's been around for almost 40, it's like 30 years, 30 something years now. It's, it was created in 1984 by uh, Dr. Masasuko working at Toshiba. So it's not, it hasn't fundamentally changed in all this time, except that we made it worse. We made it over the last six years, we've made it worse by increasing its storage. We've made it fundamentally worse in how it stores data. So your question was a pretty open-ended question that took me a long time to answer, but whatever we're going to be on over the next four or up to maybe 10 years doesn't exist today in the commercial market. Whatever it is we're going to move to, it's going to be a phenomenal move. All of a sudden, there's going to be – it's going to be kind of like what happened when you looked at 1999. We had 10 gig hard drives. That was our largest hard drive available at the, you know, right before the end of 1999. Then we moved to GMR heads, and then we started going up to you know 40 gig and then 100 gig and then all the way up to 400 and 500 gig within like two years. Everybody who had hard drives – that existed back in 1999 that didn't upgrade before 2002, 2003, all of a sudden just went out and bought a 400 gig hard drive and upgraded straight to it from, you know, a 10 or a 20 gig hard drive. Right. And I, I think that's what's going to happen in the future. I think we're going to get this new thing that's going to come out and it's going to be so phenomenal that we're just going to massively move to it in droves. And all this technology we have will slowly die over a three, four or five year period of time that we currently have until it just disappears. And, uh, you know, some of it will carry on just like it does. Like you can still use a floppy disk if you want, uh, you know, and it, and floppy disk hung out for a long time. Even USB, USB, when it started out, it was, it was pretty bad as a whole at the beginning because there was nothing to support the USB devices. There was always this promise that they were – and they still made this promise. I don't know if anybody remembers it, but USB had this promise that all the drivers were going to be embedded in the device itself that was connected to it. So you were going to plug in a mouse and it would install its own drivers. And, of course – most of our tools never did that. Most of our stuff <laughs> right. never happened. But that was what was supposed to happen. And then we've kind of evolved over time. But we still don't really have much of that going on. But I, I, I just see all of this technology is going to change in that direction from that standpoint until it's just uh, – until what we have is just gone. It's, it's a failure over the next three or four years. Well, I, you know what? I'm glad I, I asked you that open-ended question because you went into a great amount of detail, and it's exactly the information I was looking for. So uh, I do have a question, though, about the – you said RAID 6 with SAS is probably the best way to go. Now, yes. as, as far as with a server, could you still use an SSD for the operating system and just use RAID for the for the data drives, or would you say spinning drives for everything? So, so keep in mind um, – Let's say your normal lifespan, if we're going to talk about uh, SSD drive. Um, now, keep in mind, there's three basic levels. There's more than three, but there's three basic levels that we're going to discuss, and that would be SLC on memory for your for your SSD drive. Uh, so basically the faster single layer, then you have a multi-layer, and they have triple bit. And the as we get bigger, as we get into like a 250 gig hard drive, in order for the content to exist on solid state, we've got to go to either MLCs or or triple bit. And by doing so, we decrease the amount of writes that your drive can sur survive. Okay. On S SLCs, uh, which are the best and most expensive, and will be three or four times the cost of any of the other drives. So you'll spend a thousand dollars on a 128 gig good. I mean, I don't know. I have to look at numbers and see exactly. You'll you'll spend four times as much as you would on a similar device that is MLC or triple bit because they can store two or three or four times the amount of space by charging these cells, overcharging these cells basically to do destructive means to these cells. Okay. So 
So it, in my opinion, the whole point ends up being is that um, you have temp files, you have bootable stuff, you have things. And I understand it. If, if it's a server, you're not really rebooting it. So you usually start it up and you let it sit there and run. And so the content that it's actually touching is not not going to be comparable to, oh, I have to really boot the system really fast. Because that's really what you're getting to. You're saying, oh, I'm using SSD because the files that I'm going to access locally are going to make this really fast during a boot cycle, during a read cycle. And if it's your bootable OS, you're not really – if that's all that's there, you're not really improving that much. Um because once it's up and running and it's been running for a while, there, all this is cached, all this is running through the system. It's not a speed improvement at that point. It's only a speed improvement for this beginning portion where read and write cycles are important. Uh, because all your data is going to sit on this SAS array uh, you know, separately. I, I don't think there's a huge benefit. But there is a huge decrease in lifespan. So you have... You know, it's potentially possible your hard drive, if you had the same thing in a SAS, I've got drives that have been running for 8, 10 years that I have not replaced or done anything with. They're stable. I'm not going to mess anything until one of the drives in the array dies. Whereas, let's say you have a five-year lifespan, depending upon how many temp files you're writing and what you're doing to this drive, it's going to die faster, let's assume, a year and a half, two years. Do you really want to mess with your bootable system every two years? <laughs> Good point. I, I mean, that's just my opinion. If that's right. what you're dealing with, and you're if you got a lot of temp files and a lot of things that are changing on the drive all the time, it's going to decrease the the lifespan. And so, let's say it's two years. Let's let's say you're even lucky and it's three years. Definitely today, I know people are running servers that have been sitting around for seven and eight years, and they don't want to mess with it. It's got profiles. It's got stuff that's beautiful. It's got you know exchange configurations. It's got all these things that are working the way they want them to work. And so you can back them up. But then you always have that trade-off, again, for downtime and resetting back up, and can you get everything exactly perfect again? And even that's kind of rare these days that everybody's getting it exactly perfect again. Um, but I, I personally don't want to spend the time messing with keeping my business running that way if I can just – even if it's a tad bit slower, I would prefer to have the longer lifespan. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. So from you know from a workstation standpoint that you could re-image the drive – uh, you know, instantaneously, I guess you could use the SSD on those systems there, but the stuff that you're accessing from the server, that makes more sense to right. use something yeah. that's a little more solid and it's going to last a lot longer. If you're doing gaming and you have a gaming system, you know, who cares? Every two, three years, you're going to be reinstalling. You're going to get rid of everything anyway. So use SSDs there. Make it super fast. Be really happy with that, but it's going to die in two years. And so that's fine. It's a lot of money, and a lot of people spend a lot of money on their gaming systems to keep them fast. And doing that, and they're going to change that stuff out every two, three years. But on a server, servers are for stability. They're for longevity. Once you get your accounting systems running, once you got your you know video systems, all the things that are dependent upon that, the last thing you want to do, it, even in two years, it'll be – because it'll always be the day – that you don't have time, and you know, time is time is money. It's always going to be that day. It's always going to be like, and and every day is like that. Actually, you just don't realize it till you actually get to a spot and your server dies, and then you go, today is a really bad day for that to happen. You know, I have this work that has to be done. I have this spreadsheet. I have these taxes, and that's the day it dies. And it's always going to be like that. And so, I guess my opinion is is. You know, I'll buy. I, you know, if I have a server that's been in place for seven, eight years and it's run on old scuzzy stuff and it's still working. If I want to, if I want to improve speed, there's other ways to improve speed. Get a new array that attaches to it. Get something else and keep that system and its profile and all of its stuff as beautiful and crisp and clean as it is. 
Okay. Great answers. Uh, let, I'll tell you what. Let's go ahead and uh, we'll move into some emails as it's getting a little bit late here. And we'll uh, and we'll come back to this a little bit. And I'm going to tell a personal story. And you can kind of tell me what you would have done in the situation that I had. But let's, uh, let's answer email number one. And this comes from Bob Bloom. And it says, uh, Jeff, I've got some easy questions for Scott. The questions may be easy. The answer may be not. <laughs> I guess he's a poet. Uh, For this thought experiment, let's assume a relatively recent 500 gigabyte or larger hard drive filled with files. The hard drive is working perfectly with no bad spots. A single D-band pass is done, which writes zeros to all sectors or DD or CCleaner or other user utility that does a single pass of zeros. Can you personally use the tools you have available to you to recover any of the old files from that hard drive? And do you think that others, including unnamed three-letter agencies, recover files from said drive? Would the answer be any different if the ATA secure erase is done? MHDD listener since episode one, Bob Bloom, Bear, Delaware. Thanks, Bob, for the email. And Scott? Yep, thanks, Bob. Uh, and and I have discussed in other situations about – because there have been challenges to find out whether or not you can recover stuff. Like there's been you know million-dollar, $250,000 offers for people who say, oh, I wiped this drive one time with zeros. Can you get anything back? And and it has to be something you know substantial, like here's a Word document. Recover this Word document from here. And so first off, right off the bat, as soon as you wipe, you only have to wipe a drive with zeros or anything – one time, as long as you do it correctly, once you've done from beginning a sector to the end of the sector, uh, which is you know hard to do if you're actually on a running drive, you have to actually you know you've got to you can't be on a running operating system and try to wipe that and think that you're not going to get rid of you know everything that's supposedly going to be gone from that standpoint. My my whole point is one single time from sector zero to max sector writing anything, if you are consecutively writing it, you will not be able to recover a single item from that drive period. You do not have to write 35 times. You do not have to do the DOD standards of three and seven for those things to actually work. One single time and the content is gone, you cannot recover it. Three-letter agencies cannot recover them either. As a matter of fact, I teach most of the three-letter agencies. And so the special theory that there is this uh, MFM tool out there or atomic force microscopes and stuff to read that content – Negative. That is not going to work, and especially on any hard drives that have made uh, since 2000. You know, maybe going back to 1997 or earlier. Maybe there was a theory. There is a theory there that sometimes works, but not on current hard drives, and certainly not since 2006, where we're actually talking about drives that are writing data perpendicular. Um, it's completely different. A completely different algorithm. Completely different process. And an MFM scope isn't going to help you decode the content that has already been erased from that drive. It's not going to help. Uh, and no, uh, the only thing that's going to be different if you use an ATA secure erase instead of using DBAN is basically the bad blocks. Um, when you have bad blocks, uh, DBAN cannot erase the bad blocks. The, so what I mean by that is a block goes bad, data is written there, it knows it went bad, so now it goes and redirects that content to what's called the system area. So you have a reserve sector that takes the place of the sector that was already there that's in a special place that's reserved and uh, when DBAN follows the path it's going to follow the path into that special reserved area. The original content that was written in the original sector that was marked bad is still there. It's not gone. So the ATA secure erase, if the code is done correctly because it's not the same on every drive or every manufacturer. If it is done correctly, though, it is supposed to erase the content that is in the original sector that was marked bad. 
prior to the redirect to this special system area. So D-band does the redirect and follows it. The ATA secure race uh, erases that original sector. And so that's the real difference between the two. Um, and then there's two levels of secure race. There's enhanced secure race and the standard secure race. Standard secure race does one pass. The enhanced secure race does three passes with you know zeros, ones, and then random. So And there's a verification process. And that was so they could meet the DOD standard 5220 so that they could say the data was gone, including the bad blocks. So that's the only thing. I could probably recover something if you have a drive that has some bad blocks and you sent it to me and you said, oh, I wiped it. What I would do is I would use a tool, a firmware tool, that allows me to go in and modify the actual firmware of the drive, the code that's running on the drive, and I would get rid of something called the G-list. And the G-list is the grown list of bad blocks that are kept by the drive, that track by the drive. And I would just... Uh, read the content from there and go get those sectors and then I would tell you what was in those sectors and then you would be like okay um, so I raced the drive and that didn't work and you would be basically fooled at this point because there actually would still be content there but you did wipe the drive and you did wipe the sectors that the tool allowed you to do it just didn't wipe those now do you know why the DOD standard is is three passes um, I think it's originally you know earlier on when things were written with this idea uh in the in the 90s, the magnetism was done slightly different on the drives using what's called uh, um, MR drive. So magnetic uh, um, force, the content that's physically sitting on the platters, uh, was was physically done in a completely different pattern in a what's called a longitudinal pattern pattern that was laid out long ways on the disc. And the easiest description I have is if you're driving a car down the road. And you try to stay in the center on the dotted line. You try to keep your car on the dotted line. and It's not going to be perfect. You're never going to be perfectly in the middle of the car, and you're not going to be perfectly on that dotted line all the way down the street. And every time that you went a little bit left or a little bit right, maybe some rubber from the tires is left on the edges, on the residual area. So maybe we could figure out every time you went left and every time you went right by this residual area, and maybe we could figure out a pattern from that. And we might be able to discern some data if that was the way it was on a hard drive. And in the 90s, it was very similar to that process that there's a head, goes around a track. The track is not completely a circle. It's uh, it's going to cause a little kind of wobble like that, like you're, you're driving your car. And so if you only did one pass, you might be able to, with a magnetic force microscope, read uh, this residual value and try to determine – if there was a bit there that was written, the zero one. And, and there's other things that are involved there. It's a lot more complicated than this because you have an encoding process, but a lot of those were pretty well known because they were using a Reed Solomon encoding process. Now we may have variations of very complex encoding processes. So you're gonna have to have some information from the manufacturer or reverse engineer all that. So so the idea was originally that if you wrote it multiple times, you would eventually magnetize the area to nullify the residual data that would be sitting on these edges. And that was kind of why even like Peter Guntman came up with this idea of doing 35 passes to nullify that area and increase the magnetism around it. And the heads would swipe a different area as it went around each time, slightly off kilter kind of. Um, so that was kind of the goal was if we did this that many times, we would eventually kind of destroy this residual data. Now it's not really plausible because data is now stored up and down through a platter. It's not done longitudinal. Since 2006, we switched to what's called perpendicular encoding. And now the drives are thicker, the platters are thicker, and content is written down 
and the way I describe this is um, up at, for 50 years from 1956 to, ni- to 2006, we buried people long ways in the ground. We, we took a casket. We lowered it down so they are long ways. They are horizontal with the earth. But if we dug the hole a little bit deeper, we could stick three or four caskets in if we stuck them in feet first. And that would be the difference. Uh, that's the same theory that's actually happened with writing longitudinal versus perpendicular. So now we write our data up and down through the platter, and we made our platter thicker. And so we can get more in the same amount of space. Oh, okay. That's a great so, analogy, actually. Yeah, it's a it's it's and, – and we probably should bury people that way. It would certainly take up a lot less space, and there's no reason why we can't bury them feet first, but I'm sure it makes, you know, it bother people. Oh, we're shoving him in a hole feet, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's only because we all have to go to the cemetery and watch them be lowered in and that we've got this process that goes with that. But, uh, I mean, does it really matter at this point if they're, you know, dropped in feet first? Uh, your body's still there? I don't know. Uh, but fundamentally, <laughs> that's the issue that we have with drive. The data is written up and down in this in this process instead of long ways. And because of that, the, the angle and what we're reading from the magnetism is slightly different also. And we have a different – we have a much smaller area because what this did was increase aerial density. When we went, when we went to doing this perpendicular, we increased the aerial density, which allows us to write more data in a smaller space. We went from 500 gig drives – uh, immediately to 750 gigs, and then up until now, like we're still using perpendicular, so four terabyte drives uh, are primarily going to be like a basis for perpendicular drives. And now we're doing some other tricks, like shingled recording, and uh, you know they're trying to head down some other paths, trying to store data that are going to increase the aerial density by doing small little changes to it that make it infinitely harder for our tools to read that content. So, so to kind of answer your question, that was originally the idea was to make this residual data nullified by increasing magnetism over the entire platter so that there would be nothing readable by any of these tools. Okay. Well, very good. All right, let's move on to email number two. This is from Lyle Lassinger. It says, really enjoy the show. It's a pleasant surprise. I thought I, I thought I might get a little out of it. Wow. How bad does it get? Has my Linux... Addiction reached a critical stage. When I subscribed to my hard drive diet, I thought I had a problem that only a 12-step program could help me with. The question, why won't my Clonezilla image on Windows 8 restore? I can DD it. It takes forever. I see some stuff about restoring it to a partition at a time. That would be a pain as well. Trials and experimentation take a long time. Uh, a Chronos True Image would probably work, but it has some aggravating license per computer stuff. So why doesn't it work, and what are my best options? Thanks, Lyle. P.S. I guess I haven't reached rock, rock bottom yet. Worse, I'm emailing my hard drive died on a Saturday night. Well, Lyle, appreciate the uh, email, and hopefully Scott will be able to decipher some of this and you know, yep. kind of lead you in the right direction. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what he means throughout the whole email here for this process, so uh, I'm going to try to answer as best I can without having all the other information I really need. But um, so so first off, um, when I clone a drive, I clone the whole drive from sector zero to the end of the last sector. And then when I restore a drive, I focus on that. I don't, I, I go from the 
you know, re- restoring the entire process from site to site. I'm not looking at partitions, and I'm not looking at files. And so, some of the tools that you're you're using, like you know, Norton Ghost and Acronis True Image, and some of these can actually do file-based imaging instead of sector-based imaging. And one of the reasons that you would use something like Acronis True Image as an example is because it has a driver that allows you to access the sectors on the drive while it's live. So it does volume snapshotting. It uses kind of the same technology tape drives use when your server needs to be image, when because basically you're just doing creating an image to a tape drive from a tape to a tape drive. Um, and it would basically do a volume snapshot, freeze kind of the section that it needs and then turn around and then write that someplace as well. Um, DD is a little bit different because DD actually accesses individual sectors. So as you're reading and writing to your drive and you're DDing it, it's also gonna make changes. So if you're on a live system and you're DDing your live system, as you're using the system or it's making temp files or it's making files, it's going to be DDing the drive while sectors are changing. So you'll have a situation where sectors will modify over time for page files, hibernation files, things like that. And they're not going to make sense is basically my point. If you if you DD a database while the database is being used, it's going to make changes while it's doing it. DD is pretty Dumb oh, okay. up front. So changes are going to occur in the database. So consistency with the database may not be intact because there are changes to records and changes to sectors that happened along the space. So it does it, it is completely different from that standpoint. My personal opinion is you've got to, if you're going to make a clone of a drive, you need a clone of the drive while it's in a static mode. So I'm taking a drive off, I'm imaging it, then I'm putting it back. Uh, or making a you know a, an image and restoring it. And so on Clonezilla, you may have been doing partitions or you may have been doing uh, – I don't know if you did the whole drive exactly. But, I mean, I, Windows 8, there's nothing really tremendously special about that except that now you're heading into a spot where you've got EFI, an EFI, a separate little space at the beginning of the disk for EFI because um, – our old systems used to have a bias, and the bias eventually has kind of died out because we can't use drives that are larger than two terabyte. A bias requires an MBR, and the MBR is the master boot record, and in the location for a partition for the MBR, there is only 32 bits of space, and 32 bits of space is equal to two terabytes. So if you use an MBR, you can't have a bootable drive that is bigger than two terabytes. So as we've been heading into Windows 7, and Vista, Windows 7, and Windows 8, they, as we moved into 64-bit, we have the ability now to actually address the space of a larger drive, but we didn't have the ability to do that if we stuck with the MBR. So in 2006, Intel had released a public version of what's called the GPT structure, the, uh, um, the Global Unique Identifier Partition structure, basically, is what it is. So it's a GPT structure as a partition table. And that one allows us to expand beyond the two terabyte limit of the drive. And so what has to happen, though, is the BIOS has to be replaced. The BIOS needs a a piece of code that is more versatile than the 30-year-old stuff we've been using. So it's called extensible firmware interface. And there is some that's also called the adds a universal to the front of it, so UEFI. And that way you can have a new partition structure and – Maybe even still an MBR, you can overlap some of these things. And that's what's taken up a small chunk at the beginning of your drive. And this also can affect 
how you're imaging your drive or partitioning and doing a number of other things because it will take up a chunk of the beginning of the drive. And so maybe it's something associated with that. I mean, I use CloneZilla all the time and even clone like the laptops and stuff I use for classes and do those kind of things. Uh, Windows 8 doesn't necessarily have any particular problems with that process other than now it sees it as new hardware and wants to, you know, reinitialize and do its, uh, you know, serial information from that standpoint. But so the three processes that you've discussed here are completely different processes. All three of them are doing something slightly different in the process of, of imaging or removing zeros or things like that that are happening on the drive. So I guess my opinion is is that maybe first off just try to limit your problem by taking the drive out of your system and then actually just using a second system to either DD it. I would prefer DD. I really you know, Acronis and other stuff do some other things to the to the image, and I, I'm not particularly fond of it right off the bat. But I would initially just say use something to DD it, and then take that DD, restore it, and then put it back in the system and see what happens. And then make sure that that process is working, and then produce your your Clonezilla image from that. Uh, but I assume you're doing this for a backup purpose, so you're going to constantly do this, and it's going to be a circle. Um, so. That's the best I can kind of do with the answer without knowing some more information. Uh, I guess I would like to know what you're doing with Clemzilla and why you are having problems with the restore and how often you're having to do this. Because if that's the case, then uh, just make an image of your drive, keep it set aside, then you know clone your partition and then restore your partition, and then you'll still have a bootable system in that way. That way, if you're doing it live as a backup system, you don't have to do the whole drive. You can just do the clone for the partition, and it'll still be bootable if you've maintained the rest of the sectors on the drive. Very cool. Well, Lyle, I, I hope that information helps you. And definitely uh, you know, email us back and you know let us know uh, what it is you've done and what's kind of worked for you or if uh, you know any of the information that Scott's given you has been able to help because, uh, yeah, definitely want to know uh, what it is you're doing and if you're able to figure that problem out. All right, uh, email number three. This is from Roberts. Uh, Robert Eiler says, you were talking about in episode 26, you said that you cannot delete wipe a hard drive completely. I would like to know if Derek's boot, boot and nuke uh, dband.org with the Gutman wipe security level high 35 passes. We kind of talked about this. They claim that this is the paper described by Peter Gutman in the paper entitled secure deletion of data from magnetic and solid state memory. I do have an older version of dband. I think it is like one. I would like to know if this does what it says it does. Thank you. Robert's computer service, LLC, Robert Eiler. Thanks for the email, Robert. And we kind of discussed in detail this, uh, uh, yeah. uh Mr. Gutman's uh, wipe security. Yeah, uh, so so the first one that we just read and we did is basically the same answer. Uh, so it does only the sectors that exist that you have access to. It does not do bad blocks. So there still might be data. And again, it's might be data because you don't know how many. You can look at your bad block list and try to figure out how many bad blocks you might have. But if you look at SMART, if you use a self-monitoring analysis and reporting technology, which is known as SMART, and you pull the table for SMART and you look at what's called reallocated blocks, if you have anything there, which again, you might because it's possible to reset that table so that you can make it you could have bad blocks and not know you have bad blocks, but it's the closest thing you're going to get without having firmware uh, tools to kind of examine it. Um, if you see reallocated blocks and there's a number there, then you've got data on the drive that you don't have access to. That's fundamentally what that means. And so 
it's you don't know what that data is. It's some data that was written there at some point in time when the sector went bad and the device marked it bad. You don't know what's in that sector. Uh, and so as long as that's zero, your potential of wiping the whole drive is great. So you could use D-band then to wipe the whole drive. At the end, you need to check smart again because it changes while you're erasing the entire drive. And possible it can change. So you want to check smart at the beginning, see if there's any zeros, wipe it with D-band, check again, see if there's any numbers. And if it now has a number in it, now you have data sitting in a sector you don't have access to and you don't know what it is. So a hammer is a really good tool. <laughs> That's what I was thinking, uh, a hammer or a drill, right? <laughs> yeah, hammer, drill, car, you know, anything you can do at that point uh, is going to be better than, you know, possibly. And really, it's a small amount of data. Is it really going to be, you know, maybe 20 or 30 percent of the time you can tell anything about what they have on their drive, but it's certainly not going to be like a whole file or their PSTs or anything like that. You're talking about a small number of sectors. Now, on newer drives, since 2010, we've had advanced drives, the advanced format drives. Their sectors are 4K. And so if it is a 4K drive, what's going to happen is instead of that number going to 1 when you have a bad block, it's going to go to 8. So initially, it's gonna it's going to have eight sectors in 4K, and so you will have a much larger contiguous amount of data that will be marked bad in those drives. So you may notice a number that's that's evenly dividable by eight, and if your number is evenly, if you're an advanced format hard drive and it's evenly dividable by eight, that's how many sectors that you have that are bad because they're counting them as 512 byte sectors because that's what our operating system expects. So. Uh, so all of the operating systems currently expect it to be uh, a single 512-byte sector. And so 4K is going to be eight of those. So whatever your number is, if it says I have 64 or something like that, then you know you have more bad, bad sectors uh, or you know you have evenly divisible by eight from that standpoint. So, so but fundamentally, um, D-band does not solve the problem secure race solves. So I would try secure race first as the and understand secure race is not a program. It is a command. But you use something like a program to execute the command. But the way I can explain this is that when you use DBAN, you have to read and write every sector. It passes through your computer. So you literally are saying, what's the next sector? Here's the data, write it there, and you go and you write it. When you're using secure race, what happens is you say, hey, drive, I know that you have this command. I would like you to go and do it. And so you send the command to the drive. The drive goes away, chunks on it, and while it's doing it, it's unresponsive. It's not going to answer any questions from you. It's going to be off doing its own thing. The processor and the memory and the whole drive is going to be writing its own data to this platter. And when it's done, when you fin finish the, the entire drive, then it will come back and say, okay, now I'm done, and then start responding to you. And so it might be two hours, it might be four hours, it might be 10 hours. Um, I, I can't really answer that easily for you. There is a tool called Victoria. If you go and you use Victoria, there's a Windows tool. It's made by a Russian guy. Um, I go to someplace, someplace, I can't remember right off the top of my head, but something like head, Headquarters for Hard Drive benchmarks or something like that so maybe uh, benchmark HQ or something like that in Russia and so there's a tool it's called Victoria there will be an English version it runs on a Windows machine there's also a DOS version but you want to run the Windows version and if you do and you plug a drive in it will estimate how long Smart Erase is going to take for you on that drive and it'll give you your answer without any effort or you having to do any math and then if you do that you just 
have a non-responsive drive for that amount of time. When it is done, it will have erased those other bad blocks as well, supposedly. Uh, again, you know, everybody writes code differently, and every manufacturer can do whatever they want. But that's the best way to possibly do it is to use secure erase. If you're going to use DBAN, just keep in mind bad blocks are going to be available. If you're doing work for the government, DOD, DOJ, you know, military, army, anything like that, I would not consider DBAN to be good enough. Not if you're going to get rid of the drive, sell the drive, give it away, do something with it. I don't consider DBAN to be sufficient at that purpose, uh, which is what Secure Erase was meant for. And the other way I can explain Secure Erase, one other quick kind of analogy is people who know the difference between Microsoft Access and SQL Server. If you have access on a server and you are reading and writing to a database, you talk to every single record, basically. It's a, it's an I.O.-intensive process. Whereas if you're on SQL Server, you send a command to SQL, it does the job, and then returns the response. And that's what you're talking about as the difference between using DBAN and using something like Secure Erase or Secure Erase Enhanced. And all you're doing is finding a tool that sends the command to the drive you own. And not every drive supports it. So if you've got a Samsung and you want to do a Secure Erase, good luck. Uh, it probably doesn't work at all. <laughs> um, or, you know, everybody has a slightly different thing. And Secure Erase has also been stolen by, uh, by solid-state drives. What they do does not equate essentially to the exact same thing that happens on a hard drive because Secure Erase was supposed to be about heads and moving the heads to the correct tracks and erasing these bad blocks. What, what Secure Erase does on a solid-state drive is basically destroy the encryption key and basically immediately say, okay, uh, here's a new key. Let's restart all over again. And you know now I've wiped the drive and nobody has access to the data that's on it, and it happens instantaneously, whereas it'll take a long time on a spinning hard drive. Okay. Wow. Uh Great explanations. All right, let's move into, uh, I've got a couple things here and then we'll kind of wrap up. I've got a couple uh, personal things. Uh, so basically, uh, some people already that listen to the other shows already know this, but I had probably about, I don't know, maybe a month ago, I had my, my main two terabyte data drive die on my system and it started off by uh, Word document wouldn't open. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize what the signs were, so I restarted the computer and that Word document opened in the day after I just couldn't get any information from the drive. And so when I pulled my drive, I basically pulled it and put it into my bench machine to do a test on it. Just wanted to make sure that it was, uh, you know, that it was actually dying or dead or whatever. And for whatever reason, when I did that, it uh, messed up my operating system, which was on an SSD. And I'm assuming that it did something to the master boot record. I'm not sure exactly what, but um, anyways. So after all that, I you know was able to re-image my operating system drive, got that back up and running, no problem. And so I had backed up the data using a uh, an image for my data drive using Acronis. Uh, it's just what I had at the time, and it's what I was using. And when I went to get the data back. I could, but it kind of, it created uh, an, an extra like 100 megabyte partition. And we, we kind of talked about this earlier and Scott, you can talk about what that is. But um, so I had two of those in the system because I had an operating system drive with that 100 megabyte partition. I had this, my data drive and it was kind of messing some of the things up. So with all that being said, I thought I had a foolproof solution and having extra drives with, you know, external drives with the data on it stored away in my closet and I thought oh I can switch the operating system drive and get it back up and running and my solution just sucked so 
what my what my second solution is, and you can kind of you know tell tell me what I'm doing right or wrong. And basically, my second solution was I just take my data my data drive now and I make an exact duplicate external copy, you know, using a, a hard drive dock that I have that's attached to my my case, and I do that once a week. Um, I also have my cloud backup, which is going on all the time. So, you know, I'm not going to lose that stuff because it's still, and you talked about having things that, you know, die on you at the wrong time. Mm. So I'm in the middle of fixing computers and doing all this other stuff. And um, it took me over three days to get my system back to its optimal operating order. And so how would you set up a system so that you can basically be up and running in a shorter period of time than what it took me to get back up and running with the way that I was doing it. So, you know, and this is one of those situations where you could do a RAID 1, but again, you have a lot of failure with RAID 1. It's the same kind of thing. Whatever bad was written to the first drive gets written to the second drive, or you have a failure in the middle of the whole thing. But RAID 1 would be a mirror of that drive. Okay. And the hopes that once something bad happened or it died, but... But if the drive's still alive, whatever was written there is written bad to both drives, so you end up with the same situation. Uh, my my only issue probably with your new solution, which is you're now imaging it to – you're cloning it to a external drive, which is what I think I heard you say. You're making a clone, right? I, I'm actually just – yeah, I'm actually just – I'm just straight copying the data like a – like a straight oh, drag and drop. Like a, right. Okay. So that doesn't solve a bootable problem or anything like that. That doesn't give you a drive to make it bootable or do anything. I, uh, I still have, I still use, so a Cron, okay. So I also have an internal drive that a Cronus makes a disk image for me of my operating system and it yep. makes a file backup image of yep, right. my data drive. So I, I have like two different sets there. Okay. I mean, flat out the easiest thing, if you want to make sure that it's completely, I just want to pop a drive in and get it working again. Yes. So uh, I would have some sort of a script that reboots my system every night, and I would have it actually do a clone, which would only take an hour or so for your system disk to boot and clone, okay. and then and then reboot back to your OS. And so if you, if you can you know come up with a solution from that perspective, it'll actually make a clone every day of it live then you'll have an entirely bootable item. And what you need is the same thing as DD or others would do, but it needs to not be while your system's live is the best option. That way, in other words, that you can, once it reboots, it boots on this disk, boots into like a Linux disk or whatever, does a clone, then shuts down, reboots, and goes back to Windows or whatever. That way, it's not live while you're making an image. And the only reason I say this is because there are sectors that will make changes while it's being imaged, and then there will be a, a state problem. There will be two things that are in different states because this one file was being imaged while changes or temporary things were happening to it. Uh, that's that's your safest bet. But, or your other alternative is is so make a make one clone of your drive so that you have one that's bootable, that's completely exactly the way that it is as of today, and then you can just image the partition from then on, and then just put the partition back, just overwrite the same partition. That way, you're not having to deal with the bootable component or any of the other stuff that might have made changes to it. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And you know, it's one of the things I had thought about is you know, so here here was part of the problem is I had you know I was making a direct clone of my operating system on a spinning drive. But obviously, you have to stick it in the dock. The computer's got to restart because, like you said, it's got to be in that offline state when it's doing it. So it would make a direct clone. And, you know, it, yeah, it would only take about an hour to do it. I only have a 250-gig drive. Yeah. The problem was I hadn't done it for about three weeks. So, And I had made 
pretty significant changes in things. So what ended up happening is, um, here's the other problem too, is my drive letter structure had changed when yeah. I had plugged certain things in and had forgotten to plug other things in. Right. So my then data drive was right. <laughs> the wrong drive letter. And yep. so it would look like all my information it couldn't access. And this is also a problem where scripts mess up as well, too, because you write a script that says back up this to I. Right. And then later on, when you reboot, even if the drive reboots and you have them plugged in in a different order, now all of a sudden I is not I anymore. In some cases, it depends on, on how you've got things set up. But then again, the rotation of the drive letters can cause you a problem. And so, you know, it, it's a lot easier, though, if you just have you know, a solid setup that would be a script that would run and image this. I, I constantly, I mean, in my case, I have one that's an accounting system and I do run FTK and occasionally make a full backup of my existing hard drive using FTK, which means my system is running while I'm making this DD image because FTK imager is going to produce a, a basic DD, a raw image of okay. my drive while I'm doing this. Uh, I mean, I have some super fast tools, uh, imaging hard drives, um, and the fastest disk imager available on planet Earth so far that I've ever seen, especially either software or hardware, because I'm usually amazed that, you know, normally I would say a hardware solution is going to be the answer. And a tool like a Falcon, which is like a $3,000 tool, can actually make a really fast image of a drive. But um, X-Ways Forensics slash WinHex, a lot of people might know that product. They make a imager that is specifically for forensics purposes. And recently I've been getting speeds as high as eight to eight and a half gigs per minute. And that's phenomenal. I've just not seen anything that can produce an image as fast as that's doing on software these days. They sell a tool that's like 150 bucks that will just flat out make an image as fast as possible using cache and Windows and the whole thing that runs inside of Windows while it does it. So you would hook up two external drives and then make an image and spit it out. Or it makes an image file. And so maybe you guys want to go take a look at that as, as an option just because of its speed more than anything else that it can actually produce an image so fast that, you know, coming up with a script or some processing to do this. And it can restore the image and it can do other stuff too. It can examine the image. You could end up using the whole tool to do that whole thing. But the WinHex is probably, you know, your best option in that case because WinHex, even though it's a hex editor, actually understands partition structures and file systems and does them all. And so it does every one that I could possibly think of that I would want to tell you. Um, so maybe you want to go look at WinHex as a possible solution to solving some of these problems. Even though it's not intended to be a backup solution, it's incredibly fast at, at doing these kind of things. Okay. No, that's, so, that's good information. I, I guess the, the, the part of the problem is, too, is that you know there's some manual things that you have to do in these situations. And it's it's like it's it, there's not there's not really easy ways I, I would say to you know create an automatic backup. I mean, yeah, you can do it. You know, like a Cronus does a daily image or whatever, and um, you know, and that worked fine. That my like I said, my operating system to get that back wasn't a big deal. It right. was just the screw up of the boot partition, the boot yeah, partition, the boot. and then why the you know when I pulled the drive out and I put my other drive in, it changed the drive letter on it, and it was just. It was one of those things that, you know, I think sometimes in these situations you got to step back and go, okay, let's 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 take a breath 
But and, you know, you know what you we do gotta have do. the initial simple thing, which is you could, you know, just because you do one choice doesn't mean that you don't have to do two or three choices. So, you know, if I was going to try to have the most stable situation, first do raid one, which okay. is a mirror, and put two solid state drives in that have the same config. You know, that way at least I'm getting the clone from one to the other. If one dies, then maybe I'll get lucky enough that I can just boot the other one and not have that problem. And they will clone each other 100%. Okay. So at least at that point, you have a completely runnable, bootable disk. You know, the only bad thing is if it's a virus or crypto locker or whatever, it's going to do the same thing to both of them. Sure. Um, and so, but that's stage one. Then stage two, you can still do these other backups and these other things and, or have, you know, all your files syncing with Dropbox, have all your, like you can go through this process where you have, you know, triplicate or, or something where it's completely automated. Mine's completely automated. I don't have, I have triplicate that goes on and mine's completely automated. I have nothing to do with it every day. And so, uh, and I also use another solution for scripting and for copying stuff for scripting, which is vice versa pro. If nobody's used that tool before, um, it allows you to create a scripting process. And I actually script and run, you know, in triplicate. I'm doing tape backup. I'm doing uh, some offline storage where things are synced to certain things are synced to uh, important data, accounting data, and stuff like that. Sync sync to offsite services, and then vice versa, pro to sync them between drives. And so I have, you know, maybe even quad. I might even have quad backups <laughs> uh, at this point. Well, uh. <laughs> well, it's one of those things. See, I wasn't concerned about my data. I knew I had my data. It was secure in three different spots. And so that was never my concern. But it's just like I said, but three days of, you know, working on things and getting it back to your operating standard, even though, and here's the bad thing, even though I have several computers sitting around me, it really shouldn't be that big a deal, but I, it's my main system. So when it goes down, you're kind of like, <gasps> You know, yep. now what do I do? And it's like, and it, there just wasn't an easy solution at the time. So, I, you know, in my head, I thought I had the perfect solution, but what I realized was it was a solution, but it definitely was not the perfect solution. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I, I definitely think at least having the second one, cause you can do that in almost any system at this point, except for laptops easily is to okay. just make a raid one. And then at least you already have the other drive that's bootable in case there was some, you know, bad thing that happened that maybe you have one shot right away that it's a bootable one, but you know, keeping a full cl- cause if you did an actual DD image of your drive from end to end, that is always restorable from that standpoint. And it will maintain all the structure for, because those are done by sector, they will maintain the entire MBR, the bootable structure, GPT structures, and that 100 meg. Because that 100 meg is for your EFI part of, you know, a function for the GPT structure that's actually going to happen at the same time. And so that's what that's for. And if you maintain all that, it will, it, it will still be a bootable drive, and you can restore it in two hours as well. So okay. you can restore this DD image straight to another drive. There is a free tool also that you could use that does this. It's called uh, um, Self Image. It's a, it's a small 1.2 meg file. It's called self-image. You just need to be really cautious about how to use it because it is a DD image that will do both you know network file and hard drive and device. And if you back up or restore to the wrong thing, well... <laughs> Got to make sure you know which drive is which. Yep. Disk dump becomes disk destroyer. Oh, gosh. Yep. All right. Last, last question for the day because, again, this one's from me. It says, how do you... Okay, so what's the best way... So I have some older hard drives and that I taken out, you know, not really old. I mean, a few years old. I usually replace my hard. This is stupid. I replace my hard drives usually in my, my personal system, probably about once a year. 
and you know, and I'll move the other drives to you know doing some sort of other task. Not that there's anything wrong with them, but now when I was testing these hard drives, I was using like the Western Digital or Seagate tools, and I would do the extended long test. Is that a good way to test the drives, or is there a better way to do that? Um, so I don't use any of the manufacturers or any of those tools at this point because really they're mostly there for them to say warranty. Gotcha. Like that's really okay. And, and so they kind of become completely useless right up front. And, you know, it's sad to say this because it's not going to help anybody just to say your intuition in some cases. I mean, like I can hold a hard drive. I can actually tell. I can feel a hard drive in a lot of cases or put my ear to it and actually know what's wrong with it. But, you know, for people that are trying to do diagnostics or trying to do things, what I would say instead, use the tool called MHDD. And and I didn't write it, and it's just a coincidence that it's called MHDD. <laughs> it has nothing to do with me. A guy named Dimitri wrote it, um, and it's it's if you go to hddguru.com, you'll be able to find this tool. And it's an old tool. It's been around for a long time. Uh, basically, Seagate bought him years ago and, like, shut it down. So, But that tool still exists. And it can do, you know, just on a plain motherboard, you would have to have a hard drive connected to this drive, to this controller, not through USB, not through other means. And you would be able to do some basic diagnostics, like you'd be able to tell the status lights and the error lights. Um, there's a little education involved there, which is why I teach the class and I do the things that I'm doing to understand status lights and error lights and what those things are for. But doing diagnostics using their tools is uh, using Seagate's tools or anybody else's tools is pretty not going to answer anything that if you really want to know it look on HDD Guru read the materials and the forums on HDD Guru use MHDD and you'll learn so much about it and if you want to know more than that then you know call me send me an email I have a class and I have a distance learning class I have a seated class and it's all about training and doing those kind of things but I would beg you to say if you're going to do it on the low and not spend a lot of money then start studying it by using those tools Victoria is also the other tool that would be used in that case uh, but from inside of Windows it's a little harder to test things so you really have to be at a DOS prompt you really have to have your your item connected directly to the controller. USB does not work for these solutions. And you could learn how to do diagnostics and you could learn what's wrong with the drive. And there's also a command. The command inside of MHDD would be called scan. If you type scan and hit F4, it'll start a scan of the drive and you can tell whether or not it can access the sectors. And that's really what you're looking for. You're looking for the difference between I cannot access anything, a single sector on the drive, or I can access some sectors, therefore I'm actually getting to what's called user space. So that means the drive is functional. Maybe I have sectors or head damage, whereas the first one might be firmware or some other physical damage. So there's a lot to diagnostics. Um, th those other tools just aren't going to answer for you at all. And I would just say you're wasting your time. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I know one of the things when I was testing my, the Seagate drive that had died, you know, one of the things obviously they tell you before you send it in for warranty is that, uh, you know, use our tool and you know it, it it came up bad right away in that particular case but i just wondered if the, you know because a lot of times you run a short test and a short test will pass and then you run a long test and it's in the long test fails and you're like going oh what's going on here but uh yeah the mhdd i i always forget about that i actually do have a uh, iso image of that and it's also available on, on i believe like the ultimate boot cd and hiren's uh boot cd yes it is um, uh you can do well now hiren's is a pirated version of the same thing right so yep uh but the ultimate boot cd has 
you know the good free stuff on it that you can actually use that doesn't uh, violate anybody's licensing issues and but you can boot on that go to diagnostics and then drop down to hard drive tools and i'm sorry it's hard drive tools and then diagnostics tools and then you can actually go down to mhdd 32 uh 4.6 and and run that from a motherboard with a cd-rom directly to anything and you don't need anything expensive you just you can just go down to micro center and buy you know a a cheap $40 processor with a $10 motherboard if you can, you know sometimes there's rebates and you can get a $10 motherboard and that's all you need to run tests you don't need anything else you know phenomenally expensive until you get into some of the higher end categories with what I'm dealing with like a deep spar and a Tola PC3000 things that cost you know as much as a car then uh, <laughs> you know at least from that standpoint you can you can do some basic diagnostics, at least see if your drive's working. And if you want to know, send me an email anyway. I mean, if you don't understand something, I'm happy to answer it. I try to answer everything that comes my way. Uh, I might be a little slow if I'm teaching class or doing stuff because during that week I'm doing 12-hour days while I'm with the students. But uh, I'll be happy to answer anything about the diagnostic side or what you think is wrong. Absolutely. Well, I think with that being said, I think we've had a uh, a great show with a lot of great information against God, and I just want to thank you for uh, coming out and sharing. And uh, if, if people wanted to find out what you're up to and what types of classes you have coming up, how what's the best way to do that? Um, I think you should go to myharddrivedie.com, and then you will see on the initial page, on the first page, it'll tell you when I have classes and what's going up there. And then uh, start, you know, on the presentation page, I also have an area where I start blogging towards the bottom of the page, and I have a blog entry on the same thing, so it will tell you both of those. Uh, my big one, uh, I haven't made a lot of updates lately. I have, two, I have classes coming up, one in August in Washington, D.C., which will be my biggest one coming up. And then I'll have another one in Australia in December. But before those things, uh, well, October, I have a conference that I'm doing for ISACA, which is uh, I'm going to have like a full three-hour lab during that conference. And I know you'll put a post there so that yeah, everybody Yeah, I'll put knows, a link for but, the show, yep. Uh, but it's uh, ISACA, and it's in Washington, D.C. as also. And it's going to be sometime around October 19th to 22nd or something. And uh, it is a paid conference and things that you have to go through. It's not like a hacker conference or anything. But it's uh, from that standpoint, it's a security-based conference. And I'm going to be doing a – you don't have the evidence uh, because you are missing these things and maybe bad blocks, bad sectors, bad things. And that's really my focus. And I'm going to be doing like a live lab with hands-on deep spar uh, and Atola stuff there where I'll be able to demonstrate that we can actually image stuff that forensics people cannot image and why you need to see this stuff. And so that's going to be where I'm going to be posting any of that stuff as well. But if you'll go ahead and post it on the page too, uh, they're about to update their website and include that material. Okay, great. Yep. I will put the link in the show notes. All right, and uh, if you guys, uh, you know, obviously you can always uh, email Scott also, and uh, it's it's Scott at MyHardDriveDie.com, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and then uh, if you have any questions for the show that you want us to uh, talk about on air, you can email us at MHDD at PodNuts.com, and if you guys want to leave a voicemail, call 1-888-697-0162, and we'll play those on the air and answer those questions accordingly. And if you guys could do us a favor, leave us a rating and or review over on iTunes. That'll let more people know about this awesome hard drive inf- you know, recovery information that uh, that Scott is providing us with. So that would be great. Uh, you guys can also help support the Podnuts Network. The next time you're shopping on Amazon, go to podnuts.com slash Amazon. And I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. We'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died.
Music provided by Steve Cherubino at stevecherubino.com.